Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Preacher Boys Podcast. On today's episode, I'm sitting down with Dr. Kelly Palfi. Uh, Dr. Palfi began her career working in adult and youth corrections. Uh, she worked in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and was involved in uh, cases involving sex crimes against children. After retiring from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, Dr. Palfi received her PhD in counseling psychology uh, from the University of Alberta. She's a trained trauma specialist with a practice that focuses on helping men who have been victims of sexual abuse uh, and trauma. So this episode's really good. It was good to sit down and talk about a topic that's not discussed much. Even in groups that do focus on sexual abuse, the idea of men coming forward and reporting and having a safe space to talk about sexual assault and trauma uh, is something that's hard to find. And so we talk about uh, resources there. We talk about creating environments that allow men to come forward, why they don't report in the first place, uh, what the grooming process looks like uh, when it comes to a uh, pedophile and one of their victims. And there's just a lot of really good information. So I hope you'll watch all the way to the end. I know there were a lot of big questions that were answered for me. And I hope you'll pick up a copy of Men 2. It's available wherever you can buy a book. Uh, so be sure to check that out. Be sure to connect with uh, Dr. Kelly Palfi. Uh, she's got a lot of great resources that are available to you. And I know it's going to be a big help. So uh, without further ado, uh, here's the interview with Dr. Kelly Palfi. All right, Kelly, thank you so much for joining me on the Preacher Boys podcast. I know we've uh, talked a little bit to the audience about who you are, but can you just personally introduce yourself and uh, just let me know a little bit about uh, the specific nature of what you do? Yeah, okay. Thank you, Eric. It's uh, an honor to be here. I'm I'm excited to have a chat with you. Um, so yeah, I am a registered psychologist. Uh, I'm a trauma-trained psychologist, and I've been in practice for uh, my own private practice for about three years. Prior to becoming a psychologist, I was an RCMP officer, so that's our federal police department here in Canada. And uh, I specialized in investigating sex crimes, and for about four years, specifically sex crimes committed against children um, 
internationally. So we're talking sex tourism cases, um, child pornography, distribution, production cases, that kind of thing. When I left the police department and went back to school, I conducted my doctoral research examining why boys and men don't commonly come forward, because as you are aware, it's a common problem. Yeah, and you show this in your you show this in your book, um, but you were involved in a pretty massive investigation that cracked down on. I mean, I forget the exact numbers, but it was a it was a very large amount of uh, pedophiles that were that were brought in um, due to some of the investigations that you were involved in. Actually, the bulk of my time in I worked in the Integrated Child Sexual Exploitation Unit, um, right. and, and we in we were basically the startup unit, like we um, responded to a case that actually began in the United States. Um, The U.S. Postal Service had a joint investigation with the Federal Bureau of Investigations and Homeland Security, I believe. And they took down, um, it started off as suspicious packages being mailed and they took down a server, I believe it was. And they ended up with all these IP addresses, credit card receipts, that kind of thing. So we were assigned to investigate, um, you know, the owners of these credit cards, Right. And so we developed sort of a mandate for how to do that, uh, warrant templates, that kind of stuff, and began training the other police departments on how to deal with these cases. In a lot of ways, that kind of was the start of how you got involved specifically dealing with, you know, male sexual abuse. Because one of the big questions I had when I first started reading your book, and just when I saw the title, is I was like, I was surprised that it was written by a female. I was, I was thinking, you know, because it's such a, it's such a topic that nobody talks about nobody talks about male sexual abuse like it feels like never and I think that's why you wrote the book is no one talks about it but I was curious I was like so why it's not somebody who personally experienced it obviously it's not a you know male survivor writing it so I was like why is she writing specifically to male survivors and you kind of start hitting that when you start diving into the numbers of cases so can you talk about kind of you know, you don't have to give specific numbers, obviously, right now, but can you just talk a little bit about, you know, when you started to realize that, like, oh, this is a really big problem. Like, this mm-hmm. isn't a one-off yeah. thing. Absolutely. And Eric, you're absolutely right. Very few people talk about it. And that sort of is my goal is to change that, right? So that boys and men can get the help that they need. And yeah, I really actually had a pivotal moment when the lights started to go on. Um, so when I was in the RCMP, they were training me to be a subject matter expert. Um, I won't get into what it was in regards to because it's pretty graphic. But um, Sheldon Kennedy came and spoke to us. Um, he gave us a private lecture. Now, I don't know if you know who he is, but he was one of the first pro hockey players ever to come forward. So he played on the Boston Bruins. He played on the Calgary Flames. He played on a few other teams as well. But this was about in 2004. So this is before his book came out or before all the, you know, right around the time of the media releases, I guess. But he came and gave us a private lecture. And I mean, he started off his conversation by saying, I can't believe I'm in a room full of cops. And he was literally vibrating. So I was like, yeah, we can see that, right? <laughs> and and it, it really got my attention because it was like, man, he does not want to be here. He obviously has something really important to tell us. Right. And so I started paying, obviously, very close attention. And he started talking about his experience of being abused under his coach, Graham James. I don't know if you're familiar with who Theo Fleury is, but the two of them were teammates and they both worked under coach Graham James Mm. and he was uh, eventually convicted of these crimes. Yeah. So he talked about why he didn't talk about it and he gave reasons like, you know, I mean, 
I had grown up in poverty and this career as a professional hockey player um, was obviously lifting my family out of poverty. Right. My parents were so proud of me. The whole community was proud of me. Um, you know, his coach had the means to get him to the pro status pro. And, you know, it was like, kind of like all these really valid reasons for why he didn't say anything. But the one that struck me the most was that he said, I felt like people knew. He said, I felt like other parents on the team on, of other parents of his teammates knew and turned a blind eye. And mm. it just broke my heart to hear that, right? That these other yeah. parents would possibly put their own son's careers ahead of his mental health, right? What is the backstory that we always hear, right? People knew. People had a gut feeling that something was going on, and people knew. So what we know is that, and what I think, and what we believe, and is that our best defense is knowledge. People don't speak up because they don't know, right? They don't know what to say. They don't know what to ask. They're not sure if it is or if it isn't. And I think when we look at society's perception, right, of a criminal or a bad person, they wear masks, they lurk around at night, they jump out from behind corners, and they usually have a weapon. And in these cases, it's the exact opposite of that. It's a betrayal of trust and manipulation, uh, not only on the kids, but also on the systems, the organizations, and those that run it. And, uh, you know, so I believe, and, and you know, that our best defense is to create a confidence to really understand and focus on the good people. I think for a long time, we never focus on the good people in the organization and give them the tools to be better. So the really big thing, like, I mean, I'm listening. I'm obviously, my heart is breaking for him as he tells me the story. But then he talked about living this double life. He said, you know, on one hand, I was this awesome hockey player with a great future in front of me. And on the other hand, I was like, being victimized right and ironically that's the piece that I related to personally right because here I was working in the big leagues in my own mind I was in major crimes I was doing you know sexy undercover work and all this kind of stuff and and I would go home and ball my eyes out lots because I was getting bullied at work right and so here I am a cop with a badge and a gun and I'm feeling powerless to stop my own bullying and stuff like this and it was just like I got it I got that little piece that tiny little piece about living this double life right right so fast forward, you know, five years, I, I eventually left the RCMP because of bullying and harassment and developed PTSD. So there was, you know, like that piece that I related to. Fast forward a few years later, I was doing, started, I had already started my master's degree, admittedly for other reasons initially. Um, then when I left the RCMP, I was kind of like, okay, what am I going to do with myself? Well, I'm already started a master's degree. There's a good direction to head. Mm-hmm. And one of my profs mentioned working at this agency that um, worked with male survivors. And I was like, I remembered what he'd said. And I remembered that, you know, there, I, that society had failed men in this regard and that there weren't very many resources and there weren't very many advocates. And I was kind of like, Hey, I could do this. I got a big mouth. Use me for good. <laughs> right. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, there's a lot to dive into, like, I mean, obviously the why, and I mean, you've, you've written an entire book about kind of trying to dive into the why, like, why does this happen? And I, I guess, I, I guess my big question would be, you know, obviously female, you know, victimization has really come to the forefront with the Me Too movement, everything that's happened there. Um, and, you know, but you reference like there's also been male survivors that have slowly come forward. You mentioned Terry Crews in the book. Like he's, he's the only one that 
you know, mentions uh, where I read to you this far that I actually recognized. Um, I remember him coming forward and saying something. My name is Terry Crews. I'm an actor, author, former athlete, advocate, and a survivor of a sexual assault. This past year, we have seen powerful men in Hollywood and elsewhere finally held accountable for sexual harassment and assault. We also saw the backlash survivors faced after coming forward. I wanted these survivors to know that I believed them. I supported them and that this happened to me too. This encouraged me to come forward with my own experience and reflect on the cult of toxic masculinity that exists in our society. Why do you feel like it hasn't come to the forefront sooner? Is it just merely the lack of actually being reported so the stats look really skewed? Um, or do you feel like there is an idea just culturally that, you know, it's not as serious an issue when it's men versus when a woman is victimized? Like, what is that mindset that keeps it pushed kind of below the surface? Eric, that's actually a really complicated but good question. And it's not just one thing. There are a lot of reasons, right? right? So one of the big things is, um, you know, first off, research shows that boys and men don't typically talk about anything that they don't hear other boys and men talk about so if boys well, and men don't hear other boys and men talk about abuse they don't talk about it yeah. they don't want to be ostracized right they don't want to be thrown out of their village kind of thing so right. to speak they don't want to be looked at as a possible future offender you know there was this myth years ago that if you were um, a victim you were automatically going to become an offender and we know through research that that is not the case less than nine percent of victims become offenders um a lot of um, the reason is, for example, they don't recognize that they've been abused, which in part is because of, you know, culture. Boys and men are raised traditionally to suck it up, to not experience vulnerable feelings, to not be victims, right? So right. Um, sometimes they don't recognize when they've been victimized. Other times they minimize their own victimization, right? So um there's lots of, I mean, Hollywood has made millions off of romanticizing male abuse in the past, right? I'm hoping that that's changing, right? But, you know, for example, there's lots of movies where a young boy is depicted as, you know, having a relationship with an older woman or something like that. Um, no. And it's considered a coming of age experience, right? Yeah. Yet, if the roles that's were most reversed. American comedies <laughs> yeah. around that, yeah. Right. But if the genders were reversed and it was a young girl and an older man, people would automatically be disgusted and think there's a problem with this, right? right? So, I mean, there's just, there's so many reasons for why boys and men don't come forward, right? I mean, stigmatization, right? Like they don't want to be labeled a victim. They don't want their friends to think less of them, so to speak. Or sometimes they do try to come forward and they're met with bad responses, which is a huge issue, right? Like, right. And they might they might give sort of a partial disclosure and you know their friends might say something like oh you're lucky i wish that was me kind of thing or yeah yeah that's that's well, actually i'm sorry if you have something further to add to that um feel free to um but i you just said something that i think is really interesting because i see this happen a lot um especially the the, the topic of female to male abuse is is never talked about like that that's even further um and especially when it comes to sexual abuse like anytime um you know when you're on facebook and you see a report of a you know 
high school teacher, you know, female teacher, you know, sleeping with student, the comment section, and this kind of speaks to the way that guys are expected to act culturally. Mm-hmm. The comment sections are, man, where were these teachers when I was in school or, you know, that kind of mindset. But the, the thing people don't tend to realize is like that the abuse is not, they tend to sexualize it in a way that's positive when abuse has a lot of layers beyond just the sexual side of it. And so can you talk a little bit about that? And, you know, like, um, I don't know exactly which angle to go at it from, but really just, I think for guys, especially because guys are viewed as being, which is culturally also kind of, it's been disproven as well that guys are supposed to be more sexual and, and sex oriented. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that plays a role in the, the idea of abuse and um, you know, how guys are expected to feel about that kind of thing? Well, Eric, and I'm sorry, I'm not an expert in, in regards to, you know, um, how much a man might think about a boy or a man might think about sex versus a woman. I have learned that it's apparently, apparently is higher. Right. But socially, yes, guys are conditioned from their youth to believe that they never turn down sex, that they always right. want it, that it's always supposed to be welcomed. Right. And, and the reality is that boys and men have the same, should at least have the same rights as girls and women, which includes yeah. the right to, you know, be mature enough when they have their first sexual experience to um, decide with whom and when that will be. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the option of it not happening, obviously, yeah. right? But people, you're right, people hardly consider this, right? And it's, men are mocked if they, you know, men are yeah. commonly mocked if they try to say differently, right? right? But yet, actually, I really think that this is, um, this is changing, you know, I, I am hearing, I, I don't know that there's been any official research on this yet, at least I'm not aware of it if there was, but like, you know, we're, we're seeing a change in character and even young girls, um, teenage girls, right? Like I am hearing more and more teenage girls forcing their boyfriends to engage in sexual acts when they don't want mm-hmm. to, right? If you don't do this with me, I'll tell everybody you're gay or I'll tell everybody you didn't want to, right? Like, right. I think we're going to see a huge jump in female offenders, in this population anyways, or at Mm. least the research is going to show that. (laughs) Right. Wow. Um, And, you know, even diving into, so obviously this show is dedicated to a religious subsect. um, And I know you said you're not super familiar with that environment, specifically the IFB. Um, But, you know, one of the big things, um, one of the big reasons that I think, and I kind of pulled this reading from your book as well, is like one of the, you know, you mentioned like people not really either not viewing it as abuse or not understanding its abuse. And within the IFB, there is such a strong, and I'm sure with a lot of religious groups, there's such a strong sexual repression and we don't talk about sex at all Mm -hmm. that, you know, there may be a lot of cases in which, and there have, I mean, there have been cases where predators exploit that lack of understanding and knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, did you see that a lot within the work you were doing? Was it, did you find that like a certain, it was a certain age group that was targeted more often than other? Was it kids that were typically less knowledgeable or did it have a spectrum that was pretty wide as far as white? What happened? Well, so Eric, you're asking about grooming techniques, and that's a great question, right? And that is something that I dive into quite explicitly in my book, Men to Unspoken Truths About Male Sexual Abuse. But um, 
Yeah, you know, um, as I also describe in my books, there are different types of sexual offenders, right? We've got situational offenders who will basically take any opportunity to offend. And then we've got preferential child molesters. So um, they will target their own specific age of preference, right? So one of them might be attracted to very young children, whereas some of them might be attracted to prepubescent and other ones might want the child or, you know, a, a, a youth who is like, hit puberty. So they all have their different preferences. But yes, grooming techniques are a part of what makes it such a confusing um, situation for victims, right? Because, you know, I mean, you know, 20 years ago, I think the fear was stranger danger, right? But now research shows that, you know, that's like less than 10% of all sexual assaults. Most sexual assaults are perpetrated by somebody who knows the family, probably knows them well, right? Um, As much as we hate to think about this, right? Um, Especially preferential child molesters, they are very crafty. They will insert themselves into these positions where they have access to children. Whether that means they're taking up a volunteer position, some of them even go into like go as far as to go into the pastoral care or ministry, um, just specifically to get access to children. I I watched a video of an offender when I was a police lady who admitted that he had chosen that career because he figured he'd be believed over a child, right? Like that's the depth of deception that they have. And that's the, that's how much work they'll put into getting their victims, right? Like they will move mountains to get their victims. Just this idea, this awareness, like the grooming techniques are designed to win the victim's affection, right? So they are very slow and methodical. They use very calculated progressive steps typically to um, access their victims. So it doesn't start off as sexual abuse. It starts off as friendship. It starts off as coaching. Mm -hmm. It starts off as, um, you know, like, hey, you know, they, they will look for any sort of need that the victim or the family has and meet that need. Like I said wow. before, they'll move mountains to get access, right? So they'll start off by, you know, hey, I know that, you know, I'm laid off from my job, you're still working, you lost your daycare, I could take care of your kid for the day or whatever. Oh, awesome, because we have no other options, right? They'll meet that need. Um, mm-hmm. Everything will be normal for a period of time, and then all of a sudden, it's not, right? So yeah. things like we're now looking at like they would progress into touching, which could be tickling or wrestling or play fighting or takedowns, whatever they want to do to anything to gain access to them physically. Um, Eventually they'll move to maybe getting the victim to take off their shirt or wrestle, wrestle physically with them. Um, And then, you know, introducing more masculine principles, for example, rewarding them for using those principles, introduce the idea of secrecy between them, like treating them as if they're older than they are, allowing them to do things that their parents wouldn't allow them to do binding that secrecy with them like we're both going to get in trouble if you tell and it's kind of a test right so um, test of loyalty to them and but by this time they have a genuine affection for their offender because of course their offender has you know praised them given them attention that needs that they genuinely had Mm. and then it's downhill after that right (laughs) right yeah so it's building that relationship and and that's kind of the early seed of why you don't report at that stage as you do have this trust that's built up and sometimes over a year or two years, right? I mean, it can be a really long runway before yeah. actual yeah. criminal offense takes place because Absolutely. as, as uncomfortable or inappropriate as tickling is, you know, that's not going to raise a red flag for most people. Like people will see that happen and be like, okay. Um, and then by the time the actual offense happens, people have gotten so used to that normal relationship where you can hop in a car with somebody and go on a trip or you can, you know, 
take whatever steps. So, And it's often, Eric, if I may, it's often confused at that point as, for example, a homosexual relationship by the victim I'm talking, not by the offender. Right. Uh, it's, it's confused as a coming of age experience or as a relationship, right? Like if you watch that documentary, documentary Leaving, Leaving Neverland, um, the Michael Jackson documentary, and I know he yeah. was never convicted, but I mean, both of these boys are saying they were in love with him. Like they thought they had a romance happening with him, right? That's right. how they felt, right? So they didn't see it as abuse. They thought they thought it was as a romance, right? Out of a storybook, right? Out of a fairy tale. Hello, Wade. Today is your birthday. So congratulations. I love you. Goodbye. There's no thoughts of this is wrong or anything like that. And you do cover this in your book a little bit. Um, and I, I want to cover this because I thought this was like a really fascinating um, topic. But, you know, one of the things, especially when you're a younger age with a, with someone or, or even if you it's your first sexual experience is an abusive relationship, it, it does get confused because you do have the natural chemical reactions and, and the emotions that are associated with a healthy sexual relationship. But you also have these layers that are very unhealthy psychologically. And so you may experience something and you say, um, you call it in your book, involuntary arousal, but it's something where you you literally might not even like what's happening, but your body is reacting as if you do. And of course, your body's making actions that do feel good. You know, you mentioned that there's victims who have orgasmed while being abused or they've experienced physical signs of, of arousal during abuse. Even, you know, you've mentioned cases where even they're under extreme duress and they're still feeling those things. And so can you talk a little bit about that? And cause I thought that was just a really interesting portion of your, of your book and, and really um, it is, it's a, that's a confusing thing. And I have to imagine, especially for someone just hitting puberty, that's, all the confusion that's already associated with that, it has to be even more so. Absolutely. And, you know, so I keep saying this, I'm sorry, I'm not an expert on the brain, but I do know that your your body can have a physiological response, which is separate from your trauma response, right? Like, okay. I, this is the way God made our bodies, right? You're, we're designed to respond to physical touch. We're designed to respond to arousal. Our bodies respond the way they were designed to, even in those moments. However, they're also like, like, you know, in my book, I give examples where um, one of my participants in my research talks about how, you know, his cousin reached inside a sleeping bag and started masturbating him, right? So he, in his head, he's like grossed out, he's traumatized, he's like just overwhelmed, he's like, like, this isn't good, I don't know what's going on, he's confused, right? But then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, he has an, he has an erection and, and he's never had one before, um, he has, he ejaculates, oh, well, that felt good too, right? So which is it? Am I traumatized or am I aroused, right? So because of that confusion, they keep quiet, right? Um, I mentioned in my book a, a great video, um, sorry, I can't remember the name of it, but it's um, by Emily Nagoski, and I do talk about it in my book. Um, she talks... Shit, that's her area of expertise is sort of involuntary arousal and yeah. you know just basically that our brains our, our body is built to respond physiologically to touch and it just does it does exactly that it happens to women too it's just a lot easier for a woman to hide that than it is a man right i mean women can deny it maybe not even notice it like it gets lost in the sort of trauma response or whatever whereas a man it's like physically visible and not only that, typically the perpetrator will use it against the victim. Oh, look how much you like this. Look, see, you like me. Look, you know, this is mutual. This is consensual. You right. like this, right? And so they kind of gather it as physical evidence against them. And of course, it's so confusing for a boy who doesn't know. You know, you grow up with these 
attitudes that a mature man can control his erections all the time, right? Well, that's just not the case, you know? I mean, traumatized men get erections, right? (laughs) When we see this separateness of wanting, liking, and learning, this is where we find an explanatory framework for understanding what researchers call arousal non-concordance. Non-concordance, very simply, is when there is a lack of predictive relationship between your physiological response, like salivation, and your subjective experience of pleasure and desire. And it happens in every emotional and motivational system that we have, including sex. Research over the last 30 years has found that uh, genital blood flow can increase in response to sex-related stimuli, even if those sex-related stimuli are not also associated with the subjective experience of wanting and liking. In fact, the predictive relationship between genital response and subjective experience is between 10 and 50 percent, which is an enormous range. You just can't predict necessarily how a person feels about that sex-related stimulus just by looking at their genital blood flow. I'm actually reading another book right now as well called uh, Predators, um, and it's a a very good book. Um, I'm reading through that right now. And, you know, just the different forms of abuse that can happen and, and the different ways, because it really, and you mentioned Hollywood earlier, like it, it is one of those things where like, we have all these things that are super inappropriate behavior that's like justified as like, oh, it's funny or it's normal or it's this. But then the way abuse is, the way abuse is portrayed in most movies is like, it's a dark alley, it's a scary assault, and then it's done. But there's never really a, you know, it doesn't always look like you're in an alleyway with a stranger. Like it looks like a confusing relationship with your coach. Oh, my coach is giving me a little bit of extra attention and, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, Can you, I mean, obviously you, you want to talk mainly about like, and, and this is the subject we're all trying to wrap our heads around that are, you know, trying to look into this stuff is, why don't men come forward? And can you just talk a, a little bit more about the leverage of, you know, you mentioned like using the leverage of, oh, you liked it or, oh, there's this. Mm-hmm. Can you mm-hmm. talk about the way that you've seen, maybe even in the cases you experienced where the the older figure or the abuser in any case, even if they're the same age or a peer, leverages that kind of insecurity against the abused? Yeah, okay. Like um, in my book, I talk about one boy, I think I mean, in the book, I call him Aaron, I believe. And um, his story was, yeah, he was off in basketball camp. And his he was a friend of the family. He His older brother had been to the camp already. And yeah, the camp's like 60 miles from town. And, you know, everything goes well at camp. And but the coach makes a few comments. Hey, you know, you're my best player. You're the hardest worker. Would you like to stay after camp and help me break down camp? I'll pay you that kind of stuff. And then, you know, he starts exactly the grooming process or the predator, the preparatory preparation process right starts treating him as if he's older than he is lets him drive a truck gives him a beer um, starts talking to him asks him what he knows about sex that kind of thing treats him as if he already knows about sex um, gives him a few pornographic magazines leaves him alone with the magazines tells him you know you gotta do it this is do it i know you already do right so he's already implying that he's already masturbating he wasn't but he's he you know figures it out and begins masturbating little does he know that his coach has a peephole and he's watching him so he knows just just when to accidentally walk in on him. And uh, now, um, you know, of course, um, Aaron is ashamed of this and um, like, you know, fear response getting caught. And, and he, he, he basically tries to 
normalize his response. He's like, what are you so nervous about? This is what dudes do. Like, what do you think guys do when we're alone? Like, come on, don't be such a wimp, you know? And, and, and he questions him. He said, are you, are you trying to make me gay here? And he's like, don't use that word around me. You know, like he just, like he absolutely shamed him for questioning, you know, what he was trying to do. And, you know, eventually he ends up, you know, showing him how to masturbate. Right. Which I'm pretty sure most kids could figure out on their own. They don't need an adult showing them how to do it, right? <laughs> it's it's so it's just funny because or not funny. I would say it's just it's it's interesting because I'm I'm I've been hearing all these stories for the last several months since doing this, and then reading through your book, reading through predators, reading you know articles from people who are in the field of either you know what you've been doing with with specifically dealing with you know why people don't come forward, reading how predators work and how that it's just amazing how similar even how different the stories are they're so similar in so many ways and there's a lot of common things that happen every time and i'm curious i know that you're not you know i know you're not specifically but you've seen more cases than most i would say you're more of an expert than maybe i am um what are some traits for someone looking at, at a relationship with two people what are some things people can look for as like warning signs of like, Hey, this is a moving in an unhealthy direction or Hey, you may want to be careful about sending your kid with this person or so on and so forth. What are some warning signs or red flags that are usually apparent for people? Well, that's a great question too, Eric. And it is talked about at length in my book, but um, one of the things, um, first off, you said, what are some warning signs, right? Don't ignore your own instincts, right? If your guts are telling you this might not be good, listen to that, right? Like oftentimes our guts can pick up on things like physiologically that our brains can't comprehend. So, and I know that's hard to grasp, right? But like our, our sensory system is paying attention to everything in our environment. So, right. So there might be something that seems a little off and we can't even put our finger on it. But if you get that heebie-jeebie feeling, investigate, pay attention, right? Um, uh, You know, I mean, I, I like I say in my book, if it seems too good to be true, there's a chance it might be too good to be true, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, if if someone's offering to take your kids on lavish ski trips, buying them a set of skis, all this kind of thing, like, I'm sorry, normal healthy people don't typically, you know, spend excessive amounts of time with children. I mean, I, I know I'm, I know coaches and stuff do, and most coaches are, are great, you know. I'm hoping nine out of ten or more are great. But um, there is, like I said, perpetrators will in, insert themselves into these fields. So um, I would say, like, if, you know, once someone starts trying to take your child away from the crowd, pay attention, right? Like if they're, mm. hey, you know, I want to get this kid alone, that kind of yeah. thing. Watch for changes in behavior in your own child, right? Like, I mean, this is possible this would be now after the fact but if your child was you know very forthcoming about what was going on before now all of a sudden he's starting to be secretive red flag right if your child was doing well in school now all of a sudden they're doing terrible it might not just because schoolwork got harder it might be because they can't stop thinking about what happened if your child's suddenly having nightmares or wetting the bed good time to ask why right Right. Um, but yeah, I would just say like, you know, anytime a child is disproportionate, child or adult disproportionately older than your child pays special attention. I mean, it's just, it's just a good time to be aware. I'm, I'm not saying that all teachers, coaches, fosters, all these things are pedophiles, of course right, not, but, right. but pay attention, right? Like we have right. to be aware, like research shows one out of every three females is sexually abused. One out of research also shows one out of every six boys and men are abused prior to the age of 16. Right. So, 
we we don't see it, we don't tend to think that it's near as common as it is. Right. Plus, I mean, like your book is about men not reporting, so the stats may be very equal to each other. They may be much closer than what they yep. officially are on paper. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously, we've talked a little bit about like the red flags, you know, grooming and that process, and but the majority of your work has been as a counselor helping people who have been victims of you know, abuse cases like this. Can you talk a little bit about what the process someone should go through before they they actually come forward with their story and how to prepare themselves to be able to do that in a healthy way and what the benefits are of speaking out um, and, and sharing their story? Thankfully, we live in a different age than, than 20 years ago and a lot of my participants went through their abuse, but there are a lot of resources out there now for male survivors. So I would say have a look at those, right? Become familiar with what's out there. Um, before you reach out to a trauma therapist, make sure they have proper training, right? Um, okay. You know, I mean, I gave one example in my book where it was actually a pedophile who'd inserted himself into the counseling profession, like right. gross, right? right. Re- he's re-victimized instantly. So make sure that your tra- trauma therapist, at least a master level clinician they should be registered with whatever the governing body in the state is right so they've passed all their exams they're not just throwing up a shingle calling themselves a therapist someone mm-hmm. who's trained someone who's someone who says that they're trained in trauma plus maybe sexual abuse men and women right like they're yeah. starting to be more and more therapists out there that are taking the training to be um you know aware of male issues right um yeah and i i would say yeah i guess mentally prepare yourself that you know that this you know, this is a, a healthy move for you. And that if it doesn't feel healthy, um, maybe try a different therapist, right? Because mm-hmm. one of the most important things is a good relationship with your therapist, right? If you don't feel safe with your therapist, chances are you better find another one. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's that gut feeling. It may even be, you know, it may be protecting from sharing with someone who it wouldn't be mentally helpful for you to share with or, or so on. So yeah. in um, on the flip side of that too, um, one of the things, and I, I mentioned this in a previous episode, um, but uh, one of the difficult things is cultivating an environment where people can come to you if they've been abused or if they've had an experience. Because I, I did, I talked about this in a previous episode, but like um, I was molested when I was younger and um, like much, much younger, prepubescent. And at the time, you know, there's a lot associated with that, like why it took me a long time to say that. Like I, I kept that to myself until literally like this year. Um, wow. And, um, but one of the things was, you know, I did, I did talk to someone when I was a kid and I remember some of that, but it was, you know, I looked back and said, you know, did I, did I say it right? Is that why nothing was done? Did I explain it correct? Cause I didn't know. I just knew something was wrong. I didn't know yeah. why it was wrong. And so, you know, now, now, many years later, like, you know, my wife had asked me before, um, she'd asked, you know, Hey, has something ever happened to you? You know, because you're, you know, she just said, I, you don't have to tell me details. She's like, I'm just curious because you're, you know, you're doing this podcast, you're doing a lot of research in this. You're, you know, you're very like, you're somewhat abnormally interested in this subject. And so she would ask and I would always say, no, 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 no. Like, no. Um, thankfully, no, nothing ever to me that, and same with everyone else. Like uh, if anyone else ever would even hint at that, that's terrible. I'm so glad that never happened to me. That was my, I just got comfortable just saying that wasn't me. Yeah. yeah. And, um, very common. Yeah. And some of that just comes into the fact, like, 
I even look at it now and like, I just finally got to the point where I just broke and just shared it. And for me, I don't even know as someone who's, who's gone through the experience of actually sharing it and even now sharing on a podcast to like, you know, a lot of people, I don't know what would have made me feel comfortable to come forward initially. And I don't know the proper way. Like, I don't know when I'm talking to someone who's a potential victim or someone who I know has a story, how to start that conversation and when to start that conversation. So do you have any advice for people who want to be an advocate, want to help people genuinely care about someone and how they can start that dialogue with them? Well, first off, I would say educate yourself, right? Like, um, you know, especially if, educate yourself, especially if you're a professional, um, educate yourself in regards to the reasons why boys and men don't commonly come forward, which are all in my book. Um, and I'm happy to go through some of them if you'd like with you. Um, yeah, but, and, and just, I'll, I'll stop you now. If you haven't ordered a copy already, order a copy of Men Too, because it really is like, I'm, I'm reading through it right now. And it's, it's within the first few pages, I was like, okay, this is very good information that nobody's ever said to me before. And so there's definitely going to be a link in the show notes. Guys, please check it out. Just order it right now. You'll forget to order it if you wait. So just order it right now and pick it up because everything we've talked about thus far and so much like this episode is not going to cover everything that's there. So you can pick it up. But, uh, um, you know, Eric, like you're asking, and thank you for that. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry that you were abused. That's, uh, that doesn't make me happy to hear that, obviously. But um, you're asking about, like, how to create this environment of safety. Well, as a therapist, first off, I tell people, advertise that you talk about this. Advertise that it's okay to talk about this, right? Like, my website says I specialize in adult male survivors of sexual abuse. And that's only because I don't work with children, right? But, you know, so when I get a phone call, men already know that I'm prepared to talk about it, right? And to be honest, I do have, I also work with a lot of first responders because I was an ex-police officer, right? And even among that population, right, it can still take them a few sessions to come forward, right? Um, but I'm, I'm discovering that more and more they do want help with it, right? Because they are confused, because they are struggling with these memories, because there is probably childhood PTSD that's creeping into their world and affecting them now. And, you know, typically people want help with that, right? So creating that environment of safety would be like just sort of um, putting it out there that it's okay that we talk about this, that I recognize that boys and men are victims too, right? That, you know, and, and I would say, you know, yes, lots of boys and men will initially deny it. Like what I typically say is, um, you know, I'll ask right in my questionnaire, were you abused? And if the, even if they say no, and I'll say, okay, well, if you suddenly remember something or if you aren't comfortable disclosing it now and you sudden, and later on after we've established trust, you do feel comfortable you're allowed to change that answer, right? <laughs> that I'm not going to hold you to that answer that, that, you know, and I tell people it's okay if you don't want to talk about it right now, because I don't encourage people to establish trust too quickly. Even with me, you have to feel safe with me, right? Like trust should be established slowly. Obviously one of the big things when talking about something, I mean, this is very traumatic for people and mm-hmm. you know, it, it's something that is difficult to deal with and it can be like, it, it can be, almost as traumatic to rehash the events of what happened as it was when it happened. Like it's it, for some people, it's very, it's a very, you know, visceral reaction when they share their story. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious. So like you've worked on the law enforcement side, you've worked on, you know, the psychology side of it and, and working through this with, with adult male survivors. One of the big questions I have is like abusers typically have more than one victim. Like that's, that's just common. And some, I don't even like every time I see this stat, like I reread it a million times, but like sometimes it can be in the hundreds 
-hmm. like and and I can't register in that. Like, how does nobody notice after a hundred and you mentioned one person had like 150 victims. Oh no, not, not one person, the average of them. There was, I think there was 571 or something. People participated in that research. And of the 150 that were like um, diagnosed pedophiles, meaning they had acted on their desires. Um, they, they admitted to on average 150 victims each. So that, that, that really speaks to the prolific nature of right. prolific and predatory nature. Right. And I mean, I, I presume that's sort of why you started this podcast, um, you know, like the cover ups that have taken yeah. place like in the different church organizations. Right. I mean, yeah. So just to speak to that a little bit, right. Like pedophiles are organized, right? Like, you know, with the advent of the internet and stuff like that, like they trade pictures, they, um, mm. they access each other through the deep dark web, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, it's a real community. It's yeah, not absolutely. a solo thing really. They trade, right? Um, sex trafficking, unfortunately, is way on the rise, or at least we're learning about it more. You know, I, someone sent me, a, my sister sent me a podcast the other day about a, a girl from Vegas saying that the, all the underground tunnels in Vegas are being used for this right now. I mean, I didn't even know that, right? Like, <laughs> I didn't even know there was tunnels under Vegas. <laughs> good, I just moved to Vegas. Good, good to Sorry. <laughs> well, that's okay. We want to stop that, right? We want right, to change yeah, it. No, we want to create good. awareness. Yeah, exactly. No, and that's exactly why um and it is because it is a um it's the, it's the old saying if it takes a village to raise a child it takes a village to abuse one too you know it's it's the thing of you know especially within churches like it's it's either people who are ignorant who help perpetuate it or it's people who know but kind of brush it into the rug like you mentioned earlier or it's people who some of these organizations there's ones i've covered on the show where the pastor his son and his wife and this all together we're working together to do stuff and it's like Mm -hmm. it's it's crazy the way that that works and so here's here's my kind of question this is a difficult question but you're the perfect person for that like this is the number one thing that i wanted to ask you about because you've you've done the law enforcement side where you've had to work with like getting information fast so you can act to prevent something from happening um but you've also worked now as a psychologist working with people who are actually victims and having to work through in a way that's going to be, you know, mentally healthy for them and addressing the trauma that they experience. So the conundrum that I always find is, okay, if someone comes and says I was abused by, you know, pastor so-and-so or youth pastor so-and-so statistically, they're not the only one. And so we need to get the information to, you know, go to law enforcement to see that person arrested. Um, How do you balance that of like someone comes forward, they know that someone did something wrong to them, but they're not ready emotionally to share Mm -hmm. with a police officer. They don't want to sit down with a police Mm -hmm. officer, go through all that. They don't want to go through a legal process. They don't want, they want to just forget it and move on. Um, At what level do you, do you encourage people to just overcome that in the short term and go to police right away. How does that work and how do you balance the mental and the legal side? Well, actually, Eric, before anybody ever starts working with me, I have to give them their rights to confidentiality, right? And mm-hmm. one of those, um, I say that there's exceptions to their confidentiality. And one of those is if they are aware of a child or elder being abused. Okay. So <laughs> I'm kind of in a unique position. I know different psychologists might draw their line a little bit differently or at a different place. But, you know, as a former police officer who used to swear 
search warrants in court saying that, you know, once a pedophile, always a pedophile. I make my clients very aware before I even work with them that, you know, I'm ethically bound to report this stuff, right? So, and, and that, it's awesome. It makes it easy it makes it for me and for them. I mean, having said that, I don't force um, my clients to talk about their abuse before being ready to talk about it, right? But I mean, I've, I've never had anybody like, um, like, I don't say you have to go forward and tell them that you were a victim. No, that's not it. What I would say is that I'm ethically obligated to report that so-and-so is a potential offender, right? Because if, they, if they've offended against a child and they haven't had treatment, which I do believe people could possibly change with treatment and spiritual work and that kind of stuff, but um, outside of treatment, um, they're not likely to have changed. And I at least want to let the local authorities know. So I'll say, you don't have to make that phone call. Just give me their name and what town they last lived in, and I can make that phone call, right? So it's so much easier for me to do that. And it's a, an honor for me to be able to do that, right? Like, I want to try help save other children from being abused. So, I mean, I've done that many times where I'll make that phone call. They don't, I mean, if they want to do it, yeah, I'll let them. I'll trust them to do that. But if, if yeah, they don't want to do that, then yeah, I can just anonymously phone up like the RCMP in the local area and let them know, hey, you know, I'm not going to give you the name of my victim, but they did disclose that when they were two or when they were six, they were sexually abused by so-and-so, right? Wow. And what happens? So, um, and I'm just curious because like even ignorance on my part of like some of that, like the, and I've, I've learned a lot of, you know, stuff I didn't know before, but, um, you know, one of the things that I always, I have people that call me, um, and people I've talked to and, um, most of them, most of them, if they're within the statute of limitations, I basically give them the contact information of someone who can help them. Um, and then with people who um, are past it, um, you know, generally I just say, you know, when you're ready to share your story, let's share it. If you want to share it, you know, if there's any other resource or anything or people that you want me to talk to, let me know. Um, but one of the things I one of the things I wrestle with is like, like there's someone I just recently talked to and the statute of limitations is like ticking that, like I think it's next year they were saying, and I'm like, you could go right now, you know, we could address this like right now. And they're just like not ready. And I want to be respectful of that. But um, I guess from the law enforcement side, like, so if I'm to go in and say, Hey, I just talked to someone, they said this happened. How, I don't want to be, I don't want to be cynical about, but like, how likely is that action going to be taken? You know, like if, if you call the police station and say, Hey, we have, we got a tip from someone that this person did this. Is there an investigation right off the bat? Is it someone? Well, if there isn't, it's not good police work. There certainly should be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. You were, I think. No, no, no. I was just saying like, because, you know, sometimes you, you know, you just hear things where, oh, we said something, but we don't know if anything was ever done with it or if it was ever checked out. So, like, if you got a call when you were in the law enforcement site, if you guys got a call like that, what was the action that was generally taken? Um, or Well, the first thing we would do would be talk to the victim, like, tell us more. Like, where did you live? What happened? You know, how many times? That kind of thing. Right. Any witnesses? Do you have any physical evidence? That kind of thing, right? Like, you know, sometimes you still have the clothes that were worn during that time or the bed sheets or pictures of you together or something like that, right? And um, so, yeah, so we'd gather that sort of physical and emotional evidence that would be there. And then, you know, um, yeah, basically, you know, run a, run a check on the system. Has this guy ever been you know, reported for this before, which could actually be like just one of the things that I will tell my clients is that, you know, 
would it make a difference to you, for example, if you knew this guy had offended against other children? Like, would mm-hmm. if you if you knew you weren't alone in this complaint, or you know, like, yeah, I'm working with this exact thing with a female victim, right? And and I gave her the name of Canley, which is like Canadian legal cases, right? And mm-hmm. she went and googled her perpetrator's name on there and found that he'd been convicted 13 times already. Wow. So she's like, yeah, I'm going to make a complaint because she said, I'll be the first child complaint because this is a, wow. a, a, a doctor, right? And so she's like, you know, um, lots of adults have made this complaint, but anyway. I mean, you wouldn't believe like, I know you say you listen to a couple episodes, but like I know I've just had guests where either on mic or off where, you know, I can't tell you how many I've had talk to me where I say, you know, as a kid. I didn't think I could report anything because I yeah, thought my parents absolutely. would tell the police to go away or I thought yeah. my pastor could tell the police to get off the property or, you know, yeah. I didn't think the police would believe me because I'm a child yeah. or, um, or as adults, like, you know, I don't have any evidence of it. It's just yeah. my word versus their word and who's yeah. going to believe me. They're going to believe. Yeah. So um, it, it's just, I think it's really helpful to hear someone like in your position to just be able to, let people know like there are a lot of ways and options on how to address this stuff, how you can go forward. Um, you know, and you know, just the idea of like being able to anonymously report something and just have them look into it is, I mean, that's a great option. I don't think people like even my, I myself, like in my mind, I didn't really consider that being a very clear, like, that's a well, workable option for somebody. And I can't speak for the different police departments. I don't know if they would take an anonymous complaint, but I know you can phone the Ministry for Children and Families right. and make an anonymous complaint about a perpetrator, right? You know, like, I don't want to give my name, but this guy abused me and I want you to know about it. Okay, thank you very much. We'll keep that in mind, right? Because then at the very least, if another child comes forward, they've got a history of it, right? Okay, we need to take this very seriously. This yeah. is not the first time, right? I mean, because unfortunately, there are false complaints for different reasons, right? Spouses yeah. have upset at their husband or whatever right or vice versa but um and eric you just touched on like a lot of the things that i discuss in my book which are like the reasons boys and men don't come forward right like all very valid reasons in their youth like offenders will often threaten their victims you know um if you come forward like i'll kill your family or i'll kill your little sister or or yeah like this fellow that I told you about at camp, his brother had stumbled across all of these pictures in the, in a Polaroid pictures in a bag and the coach walked in and pointed a gun to his head. Like, I mean, that's a very real reason why he didn't report it. Right. Um, yeah, fear of being blamed, um, fear. This was a big one in my book and this was actually a surprise to me. Fear that it would be too hard for your parents to handle, right? My Mm. parents had so much on their plate already. I just couldn't burden them with this information. Right. Or parents had sent the message like, we don't talk about sexual matters in the house. Yeah. So they think, ooh, I, I've done something wrong. One of my participants said that, you know, his parents always sent the message that if anything was wrong, it was likely his fault. So he grew, he grew up thinking it was his fault, right? Yeah, right. Right, yeah. I mean, that's – it's just one of, it's one of those things, like, and it's, it's one of the reasons I was so excited to read your book is just that idea of, like, because it is, it's something that I, I find myself, you know, it's, it frustrates me, not from the victim side, but it frustrates me because I see these guys take advantage. There was a case um, just recently, female victim as well. And this church had had, they've had like, they've had four actually like legal cases about abuse um, in the past, like 20 years. Um, but then they've had, you know, countless other 
reports made, but they just never were prosecuted. And, um, you know, so one of the things though, that the, the last offender did was he referenced an earlier case where something had happened and said, see pastor so-and-so is not going, I'll say his name because it's all legally on record, but you know, he said, pastor Goddard is not going to do anything. He called and literally said, um, and it's actually the, one of the pieces of evidence that finally got him put away was that call was recorded of him saying, yeah. you know, Pastor Goddard, not going to do anything about this. Yeah. You know that he's let this slide before with other yeah. people. Yeah. And so it sickens me when I see people get burdened by like that kind of thinking of that, that you can't go forward. You don't have power to do anything about this. Mm-hmm. And you can't say anything about it. And mm-hmm. one of the hard parts, because I'm not, I mean, I, I tell everybody, like I do this show to just turn the mic around and let someone talk. Um, I'm not an expert. I'm not a psych- psychologist. I'm not a law enforcement officer. I'm not any of those things. Um, I, I push people, people reach out to me. I'm like, just go talk to someone who's an expert, like not me. Um, but it is, it's, I do. Sometimes I find myself like, please, like if you would just come forward, this could be such a huge moment. This could stop this person from being active. And it's, it's a hard yeah. spot to be in, you know? For sure. But Eric, don't minimize what you're doing. I know you're not a police officer or counselor, but remember what I said before about boys and men don't talk about what they don't hear other boys and men talk about. So you are a voice. I, I'm guessing that there's going to be at least several people in your audience. I don't know how big your audience is that will decide, okay, if Eric can talk about it, I can talk about yeah. it, right? It's okay. You are making it okay. This is yeah. awesome. We can, as a society, we all need to do better, right? Yeah. And you are, you are really opening that door so that's why I was excited to be on this podcast right and you know you know what breaks my heart too about like abuse that happens in the church is how many people walk away from their faith because of this right like that rips my heart out right because you know why did God let this happen right Uh, (laughs) yeah no I I I agree with you there too and and that's but again that's one of the things like there's just no especially like I keep saying it, I mean, I know when I was talking about, but like, especially with like male victims, like there really is no, for any victim of abuse, there's very, it's very hard to find real closure and like feel when that part of you feels like it's taken. And, and specifically, you just hit it with the church side and like, I, you know, I'm still a, I'm still a believer. I don't attend in that denomination, but it's one of the things where, I talk to guests and I'm like, because it happened in a church, don't let that, yeah. don't let that, don't let your spiritual side of you die. Whatever that looks yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You don't let that die. Yeah, well, yeah. You know, because it happened with a, you know, you know, like with a family member, like don't let your concept of family just <laughs> die out. Like Absolutely. don't, because they're stealing from you twice then, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Don't let them take that from you. Yeah, you know absolutely. I mean? and, yeah. Um, take so it I back. Think, <laughs> if, they sto- if they stole it, take it back. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, so just, I know, I know you have a, or we're sort of actually a little bit, but um, I do want to talk about your book specifically. And um, just, I mean, we've given a lot of context about what you do, um, but can you just talk about what finally prompted you to like say, I'm going to make this a book. I'm going to write about this and maybe talk about like some of the key um, things you hope people will take away from the book and ultimately where people can get a copy. Because I think it's, I think it's something that everybody should have on their shelf if they're interested in these topics. And 
even if they're not, if they've never thought about these topics before, yeah. I think it's good to educate yourself, like you were saying. To yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so my book's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. My book is called Men Too, Unspoken Truths About Male Sexual Abuse. It is based on my doctoral research. So basically, I went and interviewed um, 13 different men at a conference that was for male survivors and um, just threw up a shingle and said, hey, who wants to talk to me? And I had a very good response and got very rich data. Um, one of the things that inspired me was um, you know, one of my professors um, actually, he said to me, he said, Kelly, it wasn't even healthy. He said, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't tell you this. He said, but I read your dissertation all in one night. And I want to say it was like, I can't remember whether it's 188 or 288 pages, but he said he stayed up all night just to read my dissertation. He said he couldn't put it down. He said, I learned so much. So it was, it was like, holy cow, if one of my professors is telling me he learned so much, like that's inspiring for one thing, right? I mean, I also felt like it was sort of my purpose to do this, my calling to do this, right? So that this is a hidden epidemic, right? That, you know, to give examples, because, you know, even me as a police lady, I mean, I was supposed to be the quote unquote expert in the field and I didn't know any of this stuff, right? Like, yeah. so, you know, to be able to recognize why boys and men don't come forward, right? Like, you know, I'll give you an example. I was doing a trauma questionnaire with a, with a, a police officer a couple of weeks ago and I said to him, like, you know, are you haunted by memories of some of these incidents that you've been through? And he said to me, well, no, it's actually more about what happened in my youth. And so that was my, that I said, okay, what happened in your youth? You know, and he's like, well, I was sexually abused, right? So, um, you know, just more, I'm sorry, I went on a tangent there. But yeah, just to sort of create awareness among professionals that, you know, when you get somebody saying something like that, dig in, don't shy away, right? Like that could be the bigger issue here, right? Um, to, to create awareness, like parents wondering why their son went astray, like why did he all of a sudden turn to drugs and alcohol or pornography or become so promiscuous when he was a church going kid before? Why did he change so drastically? Just to get parents to be th and thinking along these lines. Teachers, if you're seeing kids show up at school wearing the same clothes over over and over and over again and bruised and like being the class clown or all those things like you know maybe start to just make sure you know ask questions is that kid okay right you know or dig in right like at least create that space to say hey if you know if anything ever isn't okay you can come talk to me I'll believe you right I'll I'll, I'll listen so and also for male survivors so that they can understand their own experiences, right? I mean, I basically took, this is not my experience. This book is not about me. It's about the experiences of 13 different male survivors, why they didn't talk about it, the confusion they went through, um, the physiological responses that they went through, the trauma responses they experienced, what happened in their body. Like three of the men I interviewed developed severe mental illness after this. They developed a disorder called dissociative identity disorder, which we know as trauma trained therapists is the body's extreme response to trauma. Like when you've been through extreme trauma, sometimes it's too much for our normal self to handle. It creates this whole other personality or personalities to handle those. So I explain those kinds of things in my book in case that is going on for one of our clients, right? Or one of the people reading the book. That's great. Um, <laughs> that was a lot of information. Sorry. <laughs> that's, that's fine. And I mean, no, it, it is a lot of information, but I think it's, um, I think of anything, this should be just a prompt for everybody to pick up the book and really read in depth to yeah, what you've you. done. And, um, it's a, it's a great resource. Um, and, um, I, like I said, I really appreciate the work that you're doing because it is, it's just a subject that we're not talking about. And I do like, that's what I hope with this show um, is I hope it shows people 
a, you know, I hope it shows people that they're not alone and who understand like, this is not something that happened to you in a vacuum. Like this is a problem that needs to be addressed. And um, there's a ton of victims out there that need to know also they're not alone. And um, it's, 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 it's really important that we're able to talk about it. And, um, and it also too, I think one of the things that's really helpful with, with your book, with books like um, Predators, with, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the name, there's another book I'm reading right now as well. Um, but it's, I think it's helpful for people who are on the side of not knowing that world and not understanding that this is a, you know, um, I forget the wording you use, but it is an epidemic. Like it is a, mm-hmm, a problem that, that's happening in a widespread way. And so I think, you know, this book is great for pastors, like people that are running, absolutely. you know, like, you know, principals, um, yeah, people who are, are running these organizations. Um, parents. Yeah, parents to read. Um, and so I definitely hope you'll check that out. Um, I do, I do want to ask one question because you said two things kind of back to back. And um, I'm just curious if you could explain what you meant by it. So um, you, you mentioned, you know, saying like, you know, one, uh, once a pedophile, always a pedophile. And then you also mentioned later, like, you know, you believe with treatment and things like people can change. Um, can you talk? Cause, cause you said those two things and I was like, wait, that sounds like two different mm-hmm. things. So I was curious if you could just, you know, kind of talk about that really quick. Um, and I, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you earlier. So this is kind of a circle back to that, no, but, okay. um, but I'm curious, like, in dealing obviously with both sides, you've dealt with victims, you've dealt with the people who are, you know, actually involved in these cases. Um, you know, if someone, especially, and I ask this because in the church world, you know, I know specifically of someone who, um, and it was actually one of the reasons that I ended up leaving the church I grew up in, but it was someone who was a 30 year old youth pastor in a relationship with a 16 year old girl. And he, he left that ministry and came to our church and began, um, you know, he wasn't when he first came back working with kids again. And then when Sip found out what he was doing, got pulled from that and he's still doing things and still involved in certain ways. And, you know, I've had people just say, you know, well, things change, people change. They can, you know, they can be restored. That's the word that they use, you know, restored. And in my mind, you know, I, I just say, you know, if a church treasurer was stealing money, you'd never put them in charge of money. Again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I guess I'm just curious, what what are your thoughts, you know, and maybe, and as someone who deals with the human mind and how people act and behave, do you think that someone can truly change from, you know, doing something like that to being quote unquote restored or be in a spot where they can be trusted again? Or is it something where, you know, that is something that just, if someone does that, you need to always just assume that that's going to happen again. Oh, and Eric, I hate this answer that I'm going to give you, which is, again, I'm not an expert in that. But, um, you know, like my area of expertise is not... Uh, okay. Know, the people that uh, say I'm pedofi- not... Uh, treatment of pedophiles. Uh, but what I will say, I, uh, you said the word restored. I would say the word restrained, right? Like, so hmm. I, like, the definition of a pedophile is someone who acts on their impulses right so someone who's either spending the entire day masturbating to to images of children or who's acting out like trying to recruit children or you know viewing child pornography those kinds of things like you know spending a considerable amount of time doing that now i i mean i again this is not my area of expertise but i would say that 
Um, and I, I don't know what is even out there for treatment, but my understanding would be that, you know, it's like basically trying to change someone's sexual desire, right? So right. A, there has to be a willingness to want to change and B, I would say the person would have to like practice restraint. I would use the word restraint, right? So people can control their impulses, right? Like even as a married man, you might see another attractive married woman, but you don't act on it, right? Yeah. So people can choose not to act on We're their impulses. We're always restraining ourselves from Absolutely. Right. And, and pedophiles can be trained to do the same. They can be trained to understand that what they're doing is extremely harmful, right? That acting on this is extremely dangerous. And I would say the best treatment would be um, making sure that they don't put themselves in those situations again. Right. So if they know they have sexual desires, like you don't insert yourself into that volunteer position, you go work with only adults or work in isolation, right? You do, like you protect yourselves, right? Like there's research out there about, um, you know, exercises that happily married men do. And one of the things is that if they see an attractive woman, they look away. They don't sit there and stare at her, right? And fantasize about her. The same would be said, like, you don't feed those fantasies, right? So, yeah, and I'm sorry, like, I, you know, I guess I should, I've actually just ordered that book that you were talking about. I reached out to the author. I believe it's the same book. I reached out to the author on LinkedIn and we she was checking to see if she had any books. We were going to email, uh, send each other a copy of our books. Either way, I'm going to get a copy of it because I want to read what she's like. Yeah, yeah. that's right. awesome. It's, yeah, it's, it's it's really. I mean, it's really really good so far in it. Um, but in that book, like, there's interviews with actual predators. So it's kind of the flip side of what your book is, where you interview survivors. Yeah. It's with her book, she specifically interviews um, the actual perpetrators of the crime. So it's kind of a it's a it's a heavy heavy read. It's a really big book to get through, but it's it's a really uh, it's a really good book um, so far. So that'll be on my list, I'm sure soon. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, I just want to ask that because that is a that's a topic that always comes up is the idea of restoration, and um, you know, there's there's currently. I mean- Oh, sorry. Can they be restored to society? Yeah, but would it be healthy to put them back in a leadership role with children? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, could they go to a church? Yes. Should they go to a church that has a Christian school? Probably not. You know, it's that. It's Should they teach of, Sunday school? Probably not. <laughs> right. Definitely. I think definitely not. We're both. Neither of us will say we're experts about it, but we can probably say with certainty that they shouldn't do that. Yeah. Um, yeah um, it, man, I like I said, I could talk to you about this all day long, um, and I I would definitely love to have you. Um, back on to, to talk about more of this because it is I we're just seeing some really interesting stuff rise to the surface right now um, both with you know male and female victims in this movement and um, you know it does like that we talked earlier about you know it takes a village like it takes a lot of people and organization to make this stuff happen and um, and I, I, I just wanted to ask that question because I thought the idea of restoration was really interesting um, there's actually a there's actually a, um, a a rapist with several victims and who um, was involved in a lot. I mean, just a lot of really horrible things. And he actually runs a quote unquote restoration ministry. And um, it's that kind of stuff just disturbs me. So I was curious to hear your professional opinion on that. Um, well, I'm not familiar with that but, at all, but yeah. Uh, so. Um, I don't know. I mean, I know God can do amazing things, but whether or not what he's done for this man, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I, 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 like I said, I really appreciate that. And, and um, I'm, is there any way that people who, you know, maybe are, are listening and saying, you know, I've been looking for someone to talk to someone who does specialize specifically in mm-hmm. this and would understand, 
What's yeah. the best way for someone if they're listening to this and they want to reach out to you directly? What's the best way to do that? Well, I only work with clients in Alberta for one thing, right? Like I have to work within my it's jurisdiction. It's in person only for that. Yeah. So, but if people are looking for a therapist, there are some great agencies in the United States. One is called One in Six. So the number one in six. And the other one is called MaleSurvivor.org. And then in Canada, there's the Canadian Center for Male Survivors of Sexual Abuse. There's the BC Society for Male Survivors of Sexual Abuse. And then there's one out in Ontario, and I think they just changed their name. Um, It's in the back of my book, though. Uh, Men's Health Center or Men's Healing Center, something like that. yeah. So, I mean, a lot of these agencies have links to like, you can put in your postal code or your zip code and it'll tell you who has, you know, who has um, um, taken training or who specialize in male survivors of sexual abuse. Having said that, like one in six and male survivor have forums, they have resource pages, they have videos, they have all kinds of support, right? Like, I mean, a great place to start would be reading about it. A lot of people have started their journey with reading the book Victims No Longer, right? Which is a heavy read. My book's a heavy read too, even for the lay public, it's a heavy read. But yeah, sometimes people start by reading about it and then and then reaching out or reaching out and then reading about it. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, well, I definitely hope people will pick up the book and, um, and check it out. And I, you know, I look forward to I'm, I'm following you everywhere that I can follow you. So <laughs> I hope that I can see um, you know, more of your work and, and things you're doing. And so, um, yeah, I, I appreciate you, you coming on and it, it is um, we, it is a pretty large audience of people that are, that are listening. And I know that there's probably people all across the spectrum of, you know, people that need to hear it because they're in an authority position, people that need to hear it because they're a current victim, people who are a past victim. And so I, I think, I think there's something, I think there's something that will help anybody um, who gets into your content and starts start seeing what you've been doing and the, the amount of research you put in is, is amazing. So well, thank uh, you. And thank yeah. you for what you're doing. Right. I mean, my research would be just sitting on the shelf if people weren't willing to talk about it. Right. And, right. You know, so that's great. Right. Like um, I do have a website. Uh, I'm changing the name of it actually, hopefully the next couple of weeks, but it's um, right now it's called men to the movement.com or right okay. now it's called men to the book.com, but it's going to be called men to the movement.com. I just, <laughs> just waiting to switch domains and stuff. <laughs> is, is there a, um, the movement I think indicates like, Obviously, it's going to be more than just the book. So I'm curious, do you have plans for moving forward? I'm hoping so. Um, right now, I'm partnering with a couple other agencies to write a, a series of books that parents could read to their children to teach them about, like, because it's awkward to, t- to teach your kids, right? So mm-hmm. storybooks that they could read their read to their young children, which kind of gently, safely warn them about um, trafficking, about um, grooming techniques, about you know, unsafe touch, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, yeah, so that's sort of in the works. I, I mean, eventually, hopefully, want to write a book for therapists on how to treat male survivors. But <laughs> Perfect. Well, yeah, I'm definitely excited to check that out. I'll link that in the show notes um, so people can check that out. And uh, I'd love to have you on a future episode. Um, sure. More of this stuff because I, I think your perspective is going to be helpful diving into even some of these, even if we wanted to start diving into some specific cases uh, in the future and take a look at what happened and and you know how things could have played out differently or or things like that so but um yeah thank you so much for joining me i know you have another appointment you're getting to soon but uh thank you so much and my pleasure let's check out what you're doing my pleasure and i wish you the best with your podcast you've had some good uh interviews and stuff perfect thank you take care 
right, guys, thank you so much for listening to that interview with Dr. Kelly Palfi. I hope you'll pick up a copy of her book, Men Too. It's available wherever books are sold. And be sure to connect with her on all the social links that she provided in the show notes of the episode. Um, I know that she's going to keep providing amazing resources that will add a lot of value to you and help you become a better advocate and supporter of those who have been victims of abuse. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.